morning, and as we begin this morning, I, uh, I want to do something that I neglected to do last Sunday, which is to draw your attention to a new part of our worship bulletin. Uh, this morning, as you came in, you should have received this wonderful folded piece of paper that has an order of service. You open it up to the inside, and there's a place for you to take notes and look at quotes as we preach through the sermon today. Now, for some of us, that's far too much space. Uh, as we write a very small letters, that's, that would be me, and for some of us, that's not nearly enough space as we have huge letters, but it is space provided nonetheless. You'll see the scripture readings, uh, the sermon title, as well as the big idea, the main point of the sermon included there on that notes and quotes page. The hope is that it would be helpful for you uh, and not a hindrance, and of course, with us being us, don't feel like you have to use it. It's there if you want to use it but a test will be given next week. <laughs> All right, so as we started last week, we started a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and we're, we're calling this, this whole series overall Back to Basics. Uh, and as we said last week, uh, uh, the season of Lent is a wonderful opportunity for us to come back to basics, the basics of faith, the basics of the Christian faith, the basics of who we are and who Jesus is. And so we look at the Ten Commandments, and we are brought back to the basics. The Ten Commandments reveal to us God's being and God's character, who He is and what He does and what He expects. The Ten Commandments bring us, ourselves, back to the basics about who we are and what we need. Last week, we saw, as we looked at the First and the Tenth Commandments, the book in Commandments, we saw that we are, at heart, idolaters. We covet and we worship things that we claim to be good. And so what we need in order to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and strength, in order to love our neighbors as ourselves, what we need is Jesus' righteousness given to us. That's forgiveness and justification. We need the power of Jesus to change us from the inside out. And we need the power of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, empowering us to obey. Now, here's a spoiler alert for the next several weeks. Pretty much every commandment is going to come back to that, what we need. We need Jesus to forgive us. We need Jesus to transform us. We need Jesus to empower us. That's back to basics. That's gospel. And I can sit down now. We can spend the next 20 minutes just uh, meditating upon that truth, right? Some of you are shaking your head no. Well, this morning we're going to look at the second third, and fourth commandment. And we're going to look at that through the eyes or the framework of God's command for His people to be holy. There's a Jewish parable that goes like this. A stranger came into a city and said to the people, I will be your king. And the people of the city answered, what have you ever done for us that you should be our king? So the man, the stranger, proceeded to do many things for the benefit of the city and of the people. He, he built a defense wall. He brought in water to the city. He defended them against their enemies. Then he said to them, I will be your king. And the people immediately agreed. In the same way, God delivered the Israelites from, Egypt, from Egyptian slavery. He parted the Red Sea. He gave them manna from heaven, the water and the quail. And he fought for them against Amalek. Then he said to them, I will be your king. And the people immediately agreed. That's really what happens in Exodus chapter 1 through 19. 
God fighting on behalf of his people, God working on behalf of the people of Israel to redeem them, to rescue them out of Egypt, to bring them into the wilderness where he provided for them, watched over and protected them, establishing his kingship over them. And then at the foot of Mount Sinai, he declares to them what life in his kingdom will look like or should look like. Listen, we are all quite familiar and quite content to let the creator of something dictate what that something should look like, right? My wife is a wonderful baker, and when she bakes things, she gets to decide what it looks like and what it tastes like. We're in, uh, getting ready for March Madness. Uh, James Naismith was the creator of basketball, and back in like 1891 or so, he wrote, as the creator of basketball, he wrote the original 13 rules to the game. He made it. He gets to do that. He, get, he made the game. He gets to say, this is how the game should be played. But sometimes we balk a little bit when we start thinking about God, the creator of all that is, and God, the, the caller of Israel, and God, who through Jesus Christ redeems the nations. Sometimes we cringe a little bit when we start to think that he gets to set the rules to the game, so to speak. But God has every right to do that. And in the Ten Commandments, especially in the Ten Commandments, God declares to his people Israel, I am your king, you are my people, this is what your life should look like. In one word, in one word we can summarize the entirety of the Ten Commandments. Holiness. The people of Israel were called to holiness. In fact, God says this in Exodus chapter 19 as he's preparing the people to receive the law, to receive the moral law and the Ten Commandments. He says, through Moses to the people of Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then a little bit later on in Leviticus chapter 19, God says this, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God gets to declare to his people what their lives should look like. He declares to them their lives should look like holiness. What does holiness look like? It looks like God. Let's think about holiness in two fundamental aspects. Holiness has two basic meanings. The first word, or the first meaning of the word holy is to be other than, to be separate from. If something is holy, it's not part of the whole, it's removed from the whole, it's separate than, it's other from. You think about the uh, tabernacle or the temple within uh, the Bible. They had the holy of holies, right? The, the smallest part where nobody ever really got to go except for the high priest one time of year. It was the holy of holies because it was the most separate, most set apart, most consecrated if that makes sense. And so God is holy. And when we say that God is holy, we are clearly saying that God is not part of his creation. We're saying that God is absolutely other than, he's absolutely separate from all of the things of the universe, all the things of the created order. God is holy, different. He's not to be confused with his creation. And so when, when God says to his people, you are to be holy, as I am holy, he is telling his people, you're to be separate from, to removed from, apart from those that are around you. God is saying, I've created you and I've given you a new way to be, and the new way for you to be is not like them. 
Now, he does this for a purpose. He does this for the purpose of evangelism, quite frankly. He does this for the purpose of reflecting towards God and giving him glory, honor, and praise. But he also does this for the purpose of reflecting to the nations around Israel what life in God's kingdom is truly like, what it means to really be human, to be light in the world. The second aspect of holiness is no less fundamental than the first, but the second aspect of holiness, the second sort of definition for it, is to be morally pure. Another word we might use for that is to say someone is, or something is, righteous. And so when we say that God is holy, we are absolutely saying that God is perfect in His being. He is morally pure in His actions and in His motivations. He always does what is good according to His own standard of goodness. He is righteous. Now, when that is applied to God's people then, when God says, you are to be holy as I am holy, he's saying to them, you must be morally pure. You must be right according to God's standard of rightness in their internal motivations and in their external actions. So that is what it means for God to be holy. And as God declares to his people, you are to be holy, it means for them to be set apart other than and morally pure or righteous. God's people, to be holy as God is holy. In Exodus chapter 20, if you're looking in your Bibles, in Exodus chapter 20, the the second, the third, and the fourth commandments show the people of Israel how they are to be holy in regards to their worship, in regards to their reverence to God's name, and in regards to their rest. These commandments and the obedience to these commandments would have set the people of Israel apart from all of the cultures around them. If you search through the laws of the cultural context of the creation of Israel, look through all those contemporary nations, all the codes of laws, you'll find codes of laws. But what you won't find in any of those nations' codes of laws is anything like the second commandment. Anything like its second commandment and its prohibition of the use of idols or images within worship. You see, the the ancient world was absolutely filled with idols and idolatry. Idols were thought to mediate the presence of the God they represented. And that's how worship was uh, uh, done. Worship was done by sacrifice giving or, or ritual action undertaken or incantations uttered in the presence of the idol with this theological belief that because the idol mediated the presence of the God, that what I did to the idol, I did to the God. And if I did it right, if I did it well, then the God would be bound, required to respond to me with favor. And thus I could, as an idolater, manipulate the God I chose to worship by making right sacrifice to the idol. There's a lot of things, uh, a lot of other things that could be said about idolatry, especially in the ancient world. But here, let's see this, right? We're talking about God's people needing to be holy, set apart other than. Yahweh, the God of Israel, doesn't operate the way pagan idols operate. And the people of Israel then were called to worship him differently. Australian pastor and theologian comments, uh, John Dixon comments, the Bible, the God of the Bible is another species entirely. And he desires worship of a different type altogether. 
There is no mediation that occurs through an idol, a piece of stone or silver or gold or wood. Rather, the people of God, uh, the people of God were to hear His voice directly and to respond to Him. In fact, as God utters the Ten Commandments, they hear the very voice of God themselves. And so the people of God are to hear the voice of God and respond to His voice, to His calling, and to worship without idols and images of God. They're called to worship the right God in the right way, to be set apart and to be righteous. Now, if you search through the laws and the religious practices of the ancient Near East, you'll find a very different understanding regarding the use of a deity's name. Names, as I'm sure we've all heard before, didn't just identify someone. It identified their being. It identified who they were beyond just a name. It identified their core characteristics. It carried with them a name, carried with it the fullness of who someone was. And in the ancient world, it was common for people to use the name of their god or goddess to take an oath, I swear by X. It was common to use the name of the god or goddess uh, in, in a prophecy or in a teaching. And it was common to use the name of the god or goddess within an incantation, sort of a magic spell, to harness the power of the deity. The thinking was, if I did it again right... I would have the power of this deity to fulfill what I've cast out. This, like the worship of an idol, is an attempt to use the God for the worshiper's own purposes, to manipulate the deity. But Yahweh will have none of that. He will not allow for His name to be used in sorcery, as if some conjurer of parlor tricks would be able to harness and manipulate the power of God Almighty, the Creator of all that is and the Redeemer of Israel. Yahweh will not have someone take his name, uh, uh, make an oath based on his name. Yahweh will not have someone teach or preach falsely and attribute attribute it to him. His people are to be holy in their use of his name. Yahweh does not tell people not to use his name. He tells his people to use his name correctly, set apart and righteous. Now, if you search through the laws of Israel's ancient contemporaries, you will not find anything remotely connected to the fourth commandment, the command for God's people to take a Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day of stopping from regular work for the purpose of worshiping God. Using God's own actions within His work of creation as the model, the people of God were to do their work for six days, and on the seventh, they were to take their rest and worship God. They were to make it holy set apart from the other six days. This is not primarily about physical refreshment. This is a day set apart for the worship and enjoyment of God. And this was unheard of in the ancient world, especially as we see God in the Bible expand the call to stopping the Sabbath to include family members, servants, and livestock. For the good of His people and for His own glory, God calls upon those within His kingdom to worship Him, to take their rest in Him as they do so. He says to His people, be holy, be set apart, be holy, be righteous. And so by living this way, by living in obedience to His commands, the people of Israel would have been holy, other than set apart from the world around them. 
And having been redeemed out of Egypt and given a way of life to live by God in His grace and through their obedience, they would be holy, righteous. God's people are to be holy as God is holy, set apart and righteous. The issue for Israel is, of course, they couldn't do it. As if it isn't enough to hear God proclaim, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. This morning in our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 5, we heard Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus just raises the bar. You see, in Jesus' day, no one kept the law like the Pharisees. They were experts in keeping the law, and thus, by all appearances, they would be the ones expected to be righteous on the inside because they were most certainly set apart on the outside. The Pharisees were the experts of the law who not only did what God specifically commanded not to do or to do, they, they also built up hedges of protection around what God had specifically required so as to not come close to violating the law. A few centuries before Jesus was born, uh, a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus IV, he called himself Epiphanes, he put an idol of Zeus in the temple and the proto-Pharisees revolted. It's the Maccabean revolt. So as to not come close to misusing the name Yahweh, the name that God gave to Moses to identify himself, they refused to utter it at all. And so as to not come remotely close to violating the Sabbath, the Pharisees defined work in all sorts of restrictive ways. And so if anyone was holy, if anyone was both set apart and morally pure, righteous, surely it would have been the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. They were set apart. They were morally pure. Or were they? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And when Jesus states that he has uh, come to fulfill the law, he is stating that he is bringing the law to its intended goal, to its completed meaning. He then goes on in Matthew chapter 5, he goes on to give six examples of fulfillment of the law as he talks about what the Pharisees taught in contrast with what he is teaching. And in every case, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and the treatment of enemies, in every case, Jesus says the Pharisees, the paragons of virtue, were wrong because they only dealt with the external and they ignored what was happening internally. This is to say the Pharisees only talked about what one did. They never dealt with who one was. They dealt only with the physical action and not with an internal motivation. So Jesus says, yeah, you've heard it say, do not murder, but I tell you, if you're calling your brother a fool in your heart and you're harboring anger towards your brother, you're just as liable as the murderer is. The Pharisees were saying, hey, as long as I didn't really kill anybody, I'm, I'm doing great. The Pharisees were only concerned with external righteousness and ignored the heart 
of the matter. The thing about holiness, the thing about the Ten Commandments, it's not just about what we do on the outside. It is as much about what's happening on the inside. The Ten Commandments are not just about an external obedience. They're also about an internal condition and the righteousness that God desires requires both. We can actually do a pretty good job, quite frankly, if, of keeping the law. We can do a pretty good job of keeping the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth commandments. We can. Let's be honest. All while we're doing it with disordered hearts. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And this is why Jesus, at a later point in Matthew's gospel, will call the Pharisees blind guides, whitewashed tombs, and a brood of vipers. Those are not compliments, by the way. Because for all the appearance of holiness, for all the appearance they were keeping the law because of what was happening on the inside of them, they were breaking the law. They were breaking the commandments. For all their appearance of holiness, the Pharisees were actually violating the second, third, and fourth commandments while they were violating the first. The Pharisees violated the fourth commandment through their callous indifference to those who needed compassionate care and justice. They kept the Sabbath in a way that glorified themselves and not God. The Pharisees violated the third commandment by teaching lies and doing so in God's name. Jesus specifically says in Matthew chapter 23, you're making, making converts, but you're converting them to hell because they're teaching false. The Pharisees violated the second commandment by making an image of God not a physical image for sure, but they had created a false image of Yahweh in their minds, and they made Yahweh, that false image, in their own image. Rather than reflect Yahweh to the world around them, the Pharisees made an image of Yahweh that reflected them. And in all of this, they were violating the first commandment through their prideful self-sufficiency and self-worship. What we really see with the Pharisees is that they were only half-righteous. And as Jesus declares, a righteousness that's only half-righteous is no righteousness at all. Let's recognize the very real possibility that we violate these three commandments just like the Pharisees did. Yeah, we can have all the external signs of obedience, but the temptations toward idolatry are everywhere and take as many forms as there are people. Any good thing of God's creation that we make an ultimate thing where we give all of our time or the majority of our time and our money and our love, that's an idol. As John Calvin has said, the human heart is an idol factory. And so we may have an external appearance of holiness like a Pharisee, but internally be worshiping a false god or worse, the true God with an idol we have made in our own image. The temptation to make an image of God which reflects our, our own is ever-present. How about the third commandment and our use of God's name? We use God's name in a flippant manner. Now think to yourself about the OMG text talk linguistic phenomenon. OMG means, oh my God. We treat him as if he has little or no importance within our world and our lives when God's name becomes nothing more than a swear word. And are we sure that we teach and preach rightly, that we listen to right preaching and teaching in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do we take our holy rest on the day of the Lord, the post-resurrection Sabbath? God's people are to be holy as God is holy. 
The righteousness that is required by God is the righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees because it is both an external and an internal holiness. A righteousness that is conformed to the acting of the law and a righteousness that is conformed to the inner working of the law. So holiness, being set apart and morally pure, is an internal state with a heart rightly aligned toward God, expressed in active obedience to God and His law that makes us different than the world around us. The Ten Commandments act as a mirror, don't they? Now we begin to see our own reflection in the Ten Commandments, and we begin to ask the question, just how well are we doing? How holy am I? How holy are we? Marcus Bachmuel has written, On the subject of holiness, the pastoral task of theology in the West may now be to goad the comfortable more than to comfort them. The message has not changed. God is holy, and no one can stand in God's presence to worship Him with all the company of heaven except by God's own gift of holiness. We look at the Ten Commandments, and we see what is expected. We look at the Ten Commandments, and if we're honest with our reflection, we see where we lack. And we look at the Ten Commandments to come back to the basics of what we need. What we need to have a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees, what we need is a new heart. We need a renewal of the inside that our outside and our inside align. God sets out his expectations. In looking at his expectations, we see our lack, and then we praise God, come to him for what we need. Here's what I mean by this. God promised to give to Israel exactly what they needed after a long history of violating the commandments. After a long history of law-breaking by the people of Israel, God in His infinite love and mercy proclaimed this through the mouth of Ezekiel. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so it is. That which God requires, God provides. That is grace. That is gospel. This is amazingly good news here in Ezekiel chapter 36, the promise of a new heart and a new spirit, the promise of God's own spirit residing within to do what? To transform us that we may be righteous. And this is a promise not just for Israel, it's also for all those from every nation, every tribe, and every language who would respond to Jesus Christ with faith and trust. The promise made to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 36 is the promise made to all people in and through Jesus as the narrative of the book of Acts makes explicitly clear. This is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit making the greater righteousness that is required possible. God's people are to be holy as God is holy, and because of God, we can. By grace through faith, Jesus' righteousness is imputed upon us. It's considered to be our righteousness. That's forgiveness, justification. 
Jesus sends the Holy Spirit upon all who believe in Him and are called by His name for the transformation of our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, hearts that desire to desire God and desire to desire to obey God. Transformation. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we can then be holy internally and externally. Empowerment. Through looking at holiness in the Ten Commandments, we're brought back to our basic needs as believers. We're brought back to our basic needs as human beings. We need justification from Jesus. We need transformation by Jesus. We need empowerment in Jesus to be who God has called us and created us to be, to be holy as God is holy. The spiritual disciplines of Lent, reflection and repentance and prayer, they help us in this. We recognize that in the here and the now, we'll struggle and continue to struggle with holiness and obedience as we continue to struggle with disordered desires. Our hearts are still being transformed. But because of Jesus, we have hope for holiness in the present, and we have an expectation of eternal holiness in the never-ending Sabbath rest that is the very presence of the Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We reflect in the season of Lent upon our mirror image found in the Tenth Commandments, and seeing this reflection, we're led to repentance and prayer. We're led to a deepening of our faith as we rely upon Jesus and receive the grace upon grace upon grace that is found in Him. God's people are to be holy as God is holy. And because of Jesus, we can. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and we give you thanks. We praise you and we give you thanks that you are a God with expectation and you help us to meet those expectations. We praise you and we give you thanks for justification, for forgiveness, for the counting of Jesus' righteousness as our own. We praise you and we give you thanks for transformation in the name of Jesus in our hearts. And we praise you and give you thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to obey. As we now come before you to sing your worship and your praise, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to do your work in our lives and upon us for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship as we sing.